John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Been searching in the dark, your sweat soaking through the floor. And buried in your bones, there's an ache that you can't ignore. Taking your breath, stealing your mind, and all that was real is left behind. This is the greatest show! Those, of course, are not my words, are they? <laughs> but P.T. Barnum, from the start of, uh, or AKA Hugh Jackman, uh, from uh, the start of The Greatest Showman. If you haven't seen that film, it's a fantastic film. I can recommend it to you. And I really wish that I could have given it you know, more oomph, but, uh, but sadly, Ben and Dave and the music group refused to be my backing singers for that um, and do the whole kind of dance routine. Yeah, some people just let you down, don't they? But this is a film that it dazzles, and it's, uh, sorry guys, <laughs> throwing you under the bus, I never even asked. To be, let's, let's be honest, I never even asked. But this is a film that dazzles in it, as it invites us to forget what's real and enter into something that will entertain and amaze us for a while, and make us feel good about life for a while. Uh, something that will make us applaud and go, wow, momentarily, before reality bites again. And my big point this evening is this. There are loads of shows out there in the world, loads of things begging for our attention, seeking to distract us from life for a moment. But Jesus is not the greatest showman. I mean, did you notice what happened in that Bible reading as Lorian read it for us there? Who at the wedding even knows that Jesus turned water into wine? Well, it was just his servants, or just the servants, and Jesus' disciples, wasn't it? Most of the guests at this wedding are in the presence of the, uh, this incredible miracle, and they don't even know it's happened. That's not what showmen do, is it? I mean, let's face it, if this was you or I, you know, we would have gone, hey, 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 gather around everybody, come on, look at, look at me, I am about to do the most incredible thing, drum roll, Ben, for like, let's go for it. That's what we would do, but no, Jesus doesn't. Why? Well, verse 11, I think verse 11 is the key. It's this whole thing. This, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee that manifested or, or revealed is a simpler word, that revealed his glory. This is not a show, it's a sign. And a show and a sign are different things. Like, that's, this is why you, you would never camp out uh, at this sign um, towards St. James's Park um, on a Saturday afternoon going, oh, look how exciting, oh, come on the tune. No, you would follow the sign to where it leads, because that's where the real action is happening, especially this season, isn't it? And this miracle, says John, is a sign which leads to something even better, uh, to the revealing of something bigger, better, more incredible than Newcastle United being in a title race. It leads to glory. Jesus' glory. You see, there's something very deep, very deep in our bones. There's an ache there, a desire for something more. And we can't fill it ourselves so often. We reach out looking for some momentary distraction to escape the weary brokenness of life. I found this to be so true, even of myself, as I, even as I was sitting down trying to write this sermon this week. But no matter how many TikToks you scroll through or how many episodes you binge watch or books you read, it's over all too soon and it leaves us hungry and empty, still wanting more. Even the very best of holidays or weekends or parties, or in this case, wine runs out. But John says that in Jesus, if we really engage with him, if we really gaze on him, we will find something so much deeper and better and more satisfying than anything we will find in a show. We'll find glory. And so through this miracle, John is, is going to pop open the door a little bit and help us get a sneak peek of it. And the first thing that we're going to see is a greater hour. Have a look at verse 1, would you? On the third day, John writes, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, before we go any further, let me just make it clear that there were two things that were incredibly shameful in that culture. The first one was public drunkenness. So if you're at all worried that Jesus is aiding and abetting that kind of behavior that we so, see so often in our culture, that's not the case at all. The second thing is, it was shameful not to produce enough food and wine for your guests. It was a massive embarrassment, especially as weddings like this could go on for three, maybe four days. And that's why this was such a crisis. And, and Jesus' mom was so kind of like, ah, is there anything you could do to help? Now, I, I don't quite know what she was expecting Jesus to do. I mean, maybe he's been performing miracles privately at home for them, uh, round, the, round the breakfast table. Maybe every, every breakfast he would make an egg for them. Poof. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Bold egg. Brilliant. Just what I wanted. You know, oh, no. We've run out of milk. Poof. Oh, Jesus, you're amazing. Any chance of some cocoa pops? Poof, and so on and so forth. I, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever she expected. Jesus isn't playing a tune, is he? <laughs> Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, which 
hold on, hold on. I know that sounds a little bit derogatory. Woman. But there's no hint of that in the original language. It could be translated, dear lady, dear lady, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And here we find a massive thing in the book of John. Jesus' hour is a huge theme. It's like a drumbeat through this book. Jesus keeps speaking about his hour or time coming. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet fully come. His hour had not yet come until you get to chapter 12, verse 43, and Jesus answers some people who he's in a discussion with. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Finally, the hour. At last. But then in the following verses, Jesus will tell them that his hour involves him dying on a cross, lifted up from the earth to endure the judgment of heaven for us. Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. And that is his true glory. It's the glory of utter self-giving love, spreading his arms open wide to draw to himself all people. Do you see how much God loves this world? How much he loves you? Which is why Jesus doesn't want to be drawn into the lack of wine problem. (laughs) Because he's come to us with a bigger problem, a bigger thing on his mind. You see, the danger is as soon as he does this miracle, uh, and if word gets out about it, then, well, can you imagine? His inbox, ping, 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 all these people, you know, coming at him going, oh, fix my problem, fix my, no, fix my problem, fix my, oh, oh, oh. but Jesus is absolutely clear. His agenda is not set by us. It's not set by humanity. It's not even set by his mum. No. Only his heavenly father sets his agenda. Have you ever played if I were God, dot, dot, dot? You know, if I were God, I'd end all the suffering. If I were God, I'd make poverty history. If I were God, I'd, I'd fix the environment. Like, like Bruce Almighty who suddenly finds himself with the power to answer everybody's prayers and he clicks yes to all, yay! And they all win the lottery and there's a riot. <laughs> it's so easy to want Jesus to fix our problems and do what we want when we want it. They're thinking that we know what's best. We know better than him. But Jesus says, no, that is not what I'm primarily about. I'm about this great work of saving the world from their sin on the cross. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about our problems and difficulties? Well, did he give wine? Yes! Nobody cares more about you than Jesus. But his big thing is not for us to have a problem-free life and yet still be stuck in the sin that is the root cause of all of our suffering and environmental problems and poverty and, and all the problems that we have as humanity. And so he will not be distracted from going to the cross to pay for that sin. And we need to trust him with that. 
How do we do that? I think his mum's a great example to us, <laughs> isn't she? <laughs> she says to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> that's what faith looks like, doesn't it? She trusts him. And maybe that should be our motto. Do whatever Jesus tells you to. And when he does do, um, what he does do here is secondly show us a greater cleansing. As in verse 6, John suddenly gets all interested in home furnishings. Do you, do you notice that? He's looking around the room going, oh, look, there's these big stone water jars there. They're very, very decorative, yeah, but, but also religious. Do you notice that? These jars, they were huge, actually, holding up to 100 liters of liquid. And they were used for ceremonial washing in the religion of the time, in the Jewish religion. So what these jars did, they stood in the corner of a room and every single day they preached to you. Constantly reminding you that you were unfit for God because of your sin. They were noisy jars. Going, you're unclean. You're guilty. You're not fit for God. You need to wash. Maybe you don't need a ceremonial washing jar to feel like that this evening. Maybe that's how you feel all the time. Or every time you blow it and you fail people and you do something stupid. And maybe no, however hard we try to hide it, that's how this sin-stained world has made us feel. Guilty and ashamed and unworthy of God. Longing for something that will make us clean. I remember talking to a man who'd ruined his life with a series of poor decisions. He'd sinned against his wife and his family and his business partner, big time. And he said, I just wish I could take my whole life and put it in a washing machine and set it on the hottest wash until all the dirt and grime is gone. Ever felt like that? We all want cleansing. But the problem is, our sin, just like these jars in the corner of the room, they're noisy preachers, our sins, aren't they? Just constantly rattling at us. They just won't go away. But then Jesus walks in and he says, fill the jars with water. Fill them right up to the brim. I don't think it's any accident that he chooses these vessels. He could have chosen plenty of other things in the household at this wedding. But he chooses to fill these vessels with water. And it's pointing to the fact that there is a cleansing coming unlike any we've ever experienced before. A cleansing not just on the outside, but of the heart as he turns ceremonial water into blood-red wine. Right from Genesis, the Bible describes wine as the blood of the grape. And of course, at Jesus' Last Supper, he picks up the wine and he says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was filled up himself with all of our sin and iniquity and filth. He was filled up to the brim with all of that sin and shame. 
all the things that I've said and thought and done, all the things you've done, the things that weigh you down, the things that nag at you, that preach at you. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You shouldn't even be at church tonight if people knew what you'd done. You'll never be clean. All of that, Jesus, he takes it on himself as he dies on the cross for us. I mean, think of these jars. And here I come with filthy hands. And when I wash, my my filth goes into the water, doesn't it? The, The water takes it. There's a swap that goes on. It becomes dirty, I become clean. If you end up, <laughs> end up with clean water at the end, you're not very good at washing, are you? I mean, that's, that's how washing works, doesn't it? And people spend, they spend years of their lives trying to make themselves clean, trying to scrub their lives, trying to sort it out, trying to cover over their guilt with, with something good, something worthy, something that will make us forget or somehow deal with it. But Jesus says, no, you can't, but I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you right now. As he takes our sin on himself on the cross and becomes dirty so that we can be clean. Okay, so John is showing us how this miracle points towards a a greater hour and a greater, greater cleansing. But then finally, this sign is going to lead us to a greater banquet. Verse 3, uh, verse 8, in fact. And he said to them, Jesus said to these servants, he said, now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I think these servants were quite heroic when you think about it. I mean, think about it. These jars used for washing, they're dirty jars, and they fill them up with water. And Jesus goes, why don't you just scoop out a little ladle and take it to the guy, you know, with the really sensitive palate, you know, the master of the feast, and give him a little sip. But there's not a hint of them going, really? Are you sure? I'm not sure that's a good idea. No, no, they do it. They obey. They believe Jesus. And so they do it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the, of the uh, master of the ceremony says to the bridegroom, he says, ah, look at you, eh? Keeping the best wine till last, eh? Ha <laughs> ha, get you. Because it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine. <laughs> but he didn't, did he? He blew it. <laughs> the wine ran out. So who was it who had to step in to the bridegroom's role and do it? Jesus. He doesn't wave a wand. He doesn't cast a spell. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even pray, as far as we know. He's not invoking some higher power. Jesus is the higher power. And he wills the water to change into wine, and it does. And it's not just any old wine, is it? It's not just, it's not just three bottle, three-pound bottle of plonk from Liddles. No, this is the best of wine, aged wine. Jesus is not trying to get this party back on track. He's making a statement. 
And to anyone who knew their Old Testament, they would know exactly what that statement would be. It was this. I am the true bridegroom, and I'm bringing in the feast. The Old Testament pictured the end of history as a happily ever after, with the world set to rights and the Messiah holding a cosmic feast. So look at these verses from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, writes Isaiah, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Can you picture this feast? It's an incredible celebration, isn't it? What's the occasion? Death has been swallowed up. All tears have been wiped away. Have you shed tears this week? This month? This year? All tears will be wiped away by the sovereign Lord Jesus himself. On that day, we will wish we had cried more as he wipes away those tears. All shame, all disgrace removed too. Forgiven and finally and fully forgotten, the Lord has spoken. It's a promise. And to celebrate, he'll be feasting a banquet of the best of meats and the finest of wines. And when you taste that banquet, you will know that all poverty and suffering and selfishness is at an end. That's the future. Weddings are huge in the Bible, folks. I mean, if you know your Bible at all, how does the Bible start? With a wedding of Adam and Eve. And then how does it end? Well, it ends with the ultimate happy ending, a wedding feast when Jesus, the great heavenly husband, is united to his people, the church. And here's Jesus showing up in Cana, little Cana of Galilee, this back end nowhere. And he says, I'm the host of that great feast, and I'm bringing it in now. Do you see how Jesus was revealing his glory here? He's the true bridegroom. Here is the one who will bring about the ultimate feast, the heavenly feast that will celebrate the death of death, the defeat of all evil, and the full and final righting of all wrongs. We were discussing heaven in our midweek group uh, discussion uh, this week, and one of our group members was incredibly honest about just how they thought about it. They said, it terrifies me. It does. It just terrifies me. And I know that they're not alone, that many people think like that about eternity. It seems that often talk of heaven is so vague and unknown and uh, oh, just interminably long that we're far, we fear more what we're going to lose than what we're actually going to end up gaining. But the Bible tells us 
the heaven is going to be the best party that you have ever been to. So think of the best time you've ever had in your life. Go on, have a, have a think. Just When have you been at your most happy? When have you just been having such a good time? You've just gone, I just do not want this to end. I wished it could go on forever. What was it? Well, I think for me, it actually was my wedding day. That's one of those times. Maybe for you, it was a show or a sporting event or, or a party or a holiday. Maybe it was just hanging out with some friends, having a great time, or with your family. That's your safe place. Maybe it's Christmas Day even. There's so much expectation, so much build-up to Christmas Day, isn't it? That I don't know if you were like me when you were a little child. You'd just like, oh, you'd be so looking forward to it, so looking forward to it. And then you'd get to like tea time on Christmas Day, and you'd be like, is that it? Is that it? Just, it's just over like that. No, no, come on, there must be something more. Maybe you feel like that now, <laughs> still as a grown-up. Folks, like the wine at this wedding, all human sources of joy run out. Even the best of times, the best of spouses, the best of families come to an end. Because they were never made to truly satisfy you. Like this sign, they were pointing to something bigger, better, greater. Because Jesus does. Jesus satisfies. And so knowing him and resting in him and feasting with him is the best thing we can ever experience in this life and the life to come. So let's go out into this week resolved to spend a little bit less time on the distractions. There's so many of them, aren't there? Begging for our attention all the time. It's so easy to get caught up in the show and then the next show and the next show and the next show. To be running around that we don't spend time fully gazing on the glory of Christ. Follow the sign that leads to the glory. How might you do that this week? Where could you start with that? Why not here in John's Gospel? Just start at the beginning. Read through a little chunk each day and pray for God to open your eyes that you would see and savor Jesus and be caught up in his glory and know him and his presence with you each day. Why don't I pray that for us? Now let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that we live in a world and a culture that, that loves, that, that begs to be entertained as often and as much as we possibly can. And so we're caught up in that too. But Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't come to bring us a, a show, a fleeting distraction, but to reveal a greater truth, the greatest glory that there is. Lord, we pray this evening, that you, you would help us to follow the sign, to see the glory of Christ, to hunger and thirst after the glory of Christ, and to build everything on him in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.